Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The pre-med years is part of the MedEd Media Network at mededmedia.com. If you're a non-traditional student, go check out the old pre-meds podcast. It's all about you non-traditional pre-med student. This is the pre-med year, session number 253. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, and always a loser, the pre-med years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the pre-med years. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to join me here today. If you're a non-traditional student, this is going to be a great episode for you. Even as a traditional student, there will be plenty of information that we talk about today for you to learn I'm excited to talk to Dr. Glenn Cummings, Associate Dean and Director of Health Professions Advising and the Post-Baccalaureate Pre-Medical Program at Bryn Mawr, which is right outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. We talk all about the non-traditional path, what students should be looking at when choosing a post-bac program, mistakes that students make when applying to post-bac programs, and so much more. One quick thing that I want to talk about right now that we didn't get to talk about in the interview is that if you are thinking about applying to postback programs, there is now, just like there is for medical school, we have AMCAS and ACOMIS and the TMD SAS, there is now a centralized application service for postback programs. Not every postback is participating in it yet. So as you're doing your research, looking at postback programs, figure out if they are taking part in postback CAS which is what they're calling it, um, or if you need to individually apply to that postback program. So just a little aside before we jump in, but that is all I have. So let's go ahead and jump in and say hi to Dr. Cummings. Glenn, thanks for joining me on the pre-med years. You're quite welcome. Pleasure to be here. How does somebody with a PhD in, in American literature, is that what it is? It is. American yeah. literature. How does somebody with a PhD in American literature get involved in the pre-med and then eventually now where you're at post-bac world? Uh, well, that's a good question. And I appreciate you uh, having the courage to ask it. I think um, some people, you know, meet me and then they, I don't know, they, for some, whatever reason, they avoid the question. But um, it's an interesting story. I mean, I've been doing this for uh, 17 years now. I've been a pre-health advisor and I started for two reasons. One, um, because I wasn't 
really that happy with the research I'd been doing in graduate school. I mean, I, I, I it was fine. I enjoyed it, but I, I knew it wasn't going to be a lifelong career for me to build on that and, you know, get a job as a, as a, as a professor of, of American lit. It just wasn't really where I was headed. Um, and two, I really wanted to do the advising piece. I mean, academic advising was something I really, early on, I really took to, I had a job, um, just as I was finishing my, my doctorate at a school that was a small, it had been a nursing college for a long time. And then it was trying really hard to become a liberal arts college and, but it was not well-funded and they didn't have any system for academic advising. And I was teaching, you know, a survey of American literature to actually, ironically, I mean, they were older students. They were people who'd gone back to school after raising families and having careers. They were, some of them were working full-time and um, not that unlike some post-bac students that I work with now. Um, but they, you know, they were, they had a lot at stake. I mean, they were getting their degrees because, um, they really were motivated to do so. And I started asking them, you know, why are you taking my class? And then that would lead to why are you majoring in what you decided to major in? And what do you want to do with your degree? And I had a line outside my door very quickly because there was nothing at that college that, that supported them in that way. And I thought, you know, this is the work that I really want to do. It's not, it's not so much the, the um, publishing and, and the research side of things. And so I knew I wanted to do that. And then I was at the university of Virginia at a time where, Literally, the guy who'd done pre-med advising for 20 years left um, fairly quickly, and I knew the people, and they said, well, do you want to do this on a trial basis and see if you if you enjoy working with the pre-health um, contingent? And actually, it was pre-law as well. I was the director of pre-professional advising at that point, <laughs> and, um, and I definitely liked the pre-health students the best, and I really took to it. And I mean, that was, that was 2000, so that was 17 years ago. I, I think you made the smart choice, pre-health over pre-law. Well, I, I, I do. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a certain I- idealism with the pre-health students mm-hmm. that I really took to. You know, I, science was not in my background. I, in fact, my work, worst course in college was biology, actually, my worst grade. Um, but I, the, the, um, the wanting to alleviate suffering um, and the, the kind of belief in improving people's well-being um, was something that I, you know, I think I shared with the students even back then. So. And how long have you been now at Bryn Mawr as their associate dean and director? I've been here three years, almost to the day. Yep. And Bryn Mawr, so Bryn Mawr is a post-bac program. Define post-bac for a student that hasn't heard of that term before. Sure. Um, I mean, post-bac, you know, is short for post-baccalaureate. So it's a, it's a, a post-bac program is a program that you do after you get your bachelor's degree or after you finish a college degree and the pre-medical post-bac programs are ones that really fall into two types. Um, my program is, is a career changer or what I sometimes call a start from scratch program where most of our students have not had the pre-medical requirements. And so they come to our program for one year and take the, the basic sciences they need to be eligible to apply to medical school. Um, and then there's another type for students that, that have, done most if not all of the of the courses um in college at the college level but they didn't do as well as they wanted to and so they they need to take additional science and and enhance their record so we kind of fall into two camps but post just refers to a program post-college post-college but not graduate school correct yeah right i've heard from many students that they are in college right now 
they're a sophomore or junior, and they are planning on taking a post back. Why is right. that the the wrong thinking? Well, um, or is it the wrong thinking? Right? That, well, mean, let's have that discussion. Is it the wrong thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I you know, I was at UVA for four years, and then I was at Princeton for eight years. I, I ran the health professions advising program there. And in my last couple of years before I left Princeton, I saw a, a significant uptick. This was now, you know, several years ago, but in the number of first year students that would come in my office, sometimes within minutes of leaving their parents' car. <laughs> um, and, the, and they would say, oh, it's really nice to meet you. I'm glad I found your office, um, but I'm not going to be pre-med while I'm, while I'm at this institution. I'm going to do it afterwards. And and I'm going to do one of these career changer postback programs. And and back then, you know, I didn't really think about it that much because I wasn't running one of these programs. But I, they were students that were very well informed. I mean, they had um, family and maybe uh, guidance counselors in high school and all sorts of people telling them about the world. And so they they were pretty well they were knowledgeable about these things. And I think the thinking was that that at least at that institution there were so many opportunities offered to them. Um, that were exciting to them, like, you know, not just study abroad for a summer, but study abroad for a year and a summer, or not just majoring, but double majoring, or they, at that institution, they had a senior thesis that was a um, very large task that everyone did and stuff. And they just felt like they couldn't get those courses in. Um, So, and, and, and I think that's only growing. I mean, the number of applicants we get to our program that are college seniors has grown a little bit every year. And I, I don't think that's going to stop. I think it's going to continue to grow because people just hear about these programs ahead of time. Is it wrong? Is it right? I, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe an advantage of it is, um, in some ways, is that it certainly gives them time to think about whether this is the right decision. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes the motivation behind a freshman saying, they're not going to do it now. They're going to do it later. You know, there might be something there in terms of their level of even of commitment, you know, and if more time goes by, um, you know, wonderful, it's a wonderful thing about college is that it exposes you to a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes they get attracted to something else and they never do medicine and that's probably better for the world. I mean, it's probably better for medicine and it's probably better for them, you know? Um, so I think that's an advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's not in the spirit of what these programs were created for. I mean, the reason they're called career changer programs is because I think they came about, at least we, we came about 45 years ago. We're in our 45th year um, at a time where I think medical schools were looking at their students and saying, well, not everyone needs to be a bio major or a chemistry major or a biochemistry major. You know, we, we could have people with a wide variety of academic backgrounds and we would like older students and it would be nice to diversify the class with people with life experience and Bryn Mawr's program started. And then some of our peer programs started at that time to address that need. And of course that's not, you know, that's not what's happening so much with these people coming right out of college, but we, we, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I mean, we, we, uh, we certainly still consider them, um, right out of college, but we, we do interview them and we kind of, um, carefully inquire about why, if they were so excited about medicine, why weren't they doing it in college? You know? Um, So, so let me ask you that. So my assumption and, and nobody, we can't answer this on the podcast because we're not these students, but my assumption would be that 
they have been told or they have gone online and and saw that you need to be a perfect student and have perfect GPA and and perfect MCAT score and all these extracurriculars and they go wow there's there's no way I can do that and uh and do everything else that college life is supposed to bring me so I'm going to take the safe road and just delay all of that stuff until later do you think that's a bigger motivation or is it really I want to experience everything that college has to give me. And if I'm still interested in medicine, then I'll go and do this post-bac thing. Honestly, I, th- I think it's probably still more the, the latter of those two. Uh, if they, if they're, if they tr- are truly well-informed about the nature of our programs, because we're not a walk in the park. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, these programs are very rigorous. We, we, at least at our program, you're doing all the sciences in one year and yes, you do have four years of college behind you, so you have some academic skills that you didn't have um, if you were doing it as a, you know, in, in in general chemistry as a freshman. But you're not taking the sciences one or two at a time; you're taking them all at once. And um, I think to think that it's going to be a way to get better grades or or to to somehow, um, you know, the the safer route or the or the or the easy route. I, I don't. Think that's necessarily true. It, it may be yeah. what a freshman thinks. Yeah, I don't it's think not, it's true. It's not, <laughs> it's not necessarily based on fact. Yeah. yeah. What is the advantage of of a student who may be thinking that they're they're in undergrad and, and they're gonna they're they're thinking about taking a post back? What's the advantage of doing the post back versus just staying in school post graduation and and taking their classes in their undergraduate school? You mean just staying as a continuing ed yeah. education student? Yeah, as a non-degree-seeking student at that point. Yeah. Um, well, I think I may be a little biased, given where I'm speaking from, but I, I know the students that are attracted to our program say that they wanted, more than anything, the, the sense of community. I mean, they wanted, they wanted a group of people going through the same thing that they were going through almost like a dress rehearsal for medical school. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 and our program does feel like that sometimes I think, but it's a very tightly knit community. Um, we're, we're, uh, between 75 and 80 students. Um, so we're fairly small, but certainly large enough that we have a fairly d- diverse group. And, um, they, they want that group of people with similar goals and similar values. And they want to be part of that. If you, if you take, if you stay at your undergraduate institution or if you go somewhere else and just take the classes, on their own, you're, you're nine times out of 10. I mean, you're losing that. Um, you're also potentially in a situation where you don't have a structured advising Mm -hmm. system. It depends on the institution, but, and it's certainly, if it's your alma mater, it depends on how they treat alumni and what their policies are about alumni. But, but, um, you know, we're, we're very involved in, in the students, um, academic success. I mean, you know, I'm working every day, um, one-on-one with students and, and making sure that, that, uh, their weaknesses academically are being addressed and we know what their strengths are. And we're really kind of trying to guide them towards succeeding academically. And for the very independent and very driven and very, um, um, student that's not worried about that. I mean, you know, potentially you don't need a, a program like ours, but I think most of the career changer programs like, like mine at small schools, especially are, that's something we're, we're offering for the student that really wants it, um, that you can get if you do the classes, um, on your own. So the structure is something that I talk a lot about with students who are in that 
uh, in that fork in the road of do I do I just go and take my undergrad classes or do I go and seek a postback program, a, a formal postback program like Bryn Mawr? And, right. and my my answer to them always is if you if you need the structure, then a formal postback program will give that to you. Um, I don't talk about community a lot, but that that is a very important aspect that I, I will add into that scenario as well. Sure. I mean, we have, you know, we have co-curricular things going on during their year here as well as just the classes. And I think, I think you're paying for that as a student. I mean, you, you, the expectation I think is that that you're going to learn a little bit more about medicine while you're here. Um, that you're going to certainly be involved in the community and service. And we have. Um, someone on our staff who works with students just to help them find places in the greater Philadelphia community to volunteer in a healthcare setting. We've got um, committees, you know, social committee, sports committee, <laughs> uh, wellness committee. I mean, we have the groups of students that come together and then they host different types of events throughout the year. And, and then we have this thing called health. Prof- I don't mean to just talk about my program, but I think most of the other programs mm-hmm. have these things as well. We have things, things called health interest programming where we bring in speakers from the medical community or um, have different types of events centered around issues in healthcare. And so, it, you know, whether you're playing soccer with your buddies as part of the sports committee, or whether you're going to hear someone talk about integrative medicine, you know, on a Wednesday night, I mean, it just brings people together in ways other than just studying for a test. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's where the community piece comes into. And it's, it's um it's what I consistently hear from the people who finish the program that they value the most. And it's, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but I mean, I think it's what we hope you will have when you get to medical school too, mm. in that first year or two. I mean, Definitely. at least the preclinical years of medical school. Definitely. And that's, I talk about it all the time with the medical school interview. Those interviewers, the, those admissions committee members are trying to put together a community of students. And so that's right. a big part of your interviewing skills is showing that you can be part of that community. Right. The, so Bryn Mawr and postback programs, one of the disadvantages can be cost for some people. It's a, it's a, a big cost to go to a postback program, but included in that you talked about kind of everything else that you have going on is that very structured environment does Bryn Mawr, and, and maybe generically, uh, if you've seen most postback programs or or not a lot, um, do do you guys go out and and you go and and say, okay, as a as a student applying to medical school, you need shadowing hours, you need clinical experiences, you need X Y Z. Are you building that into the curriculum as well, and and helping people find those places to get shadowing and clinical experiences? Um. Well, I wouldn't call it part of our curriculum, but it's it's something that I am talking about the day they arrive. I mean, literally at orientation, we're we're talking about the necessity of having that as being part of their typical week. And then we're a program that runs May to May. So so they arrive in late May. They arrive at the beginning of the summer, basically. And so then over the summer, like I said, I do have a staff member who works with them to um, find the place in the community that where they want to um, get some clinical experience in a way that enhances what they've already done. I mean, you know, we have people coming in with a wide variety of that type of experience already under their belt. Some people have very little um, true career changers might be leaving a profession that was completely different from medicine last week, you know, and so they don't have much. Um, and then there are others 
that might have been doing clinical research or or um, working in a in a clinical setting or something for a couple of years before they get here. So it really depends on the individual. But that staff member that I work with, and I think most of my type of programs have someone who really works with the students closely to f- to help guide them toward a clinical experience that they're going to find valuable. You know, and then we have literally a you know a large database of what everyone's done in the past, and so you know they and they have access to that as a student where they can um, you know generate ideas about what they might want to do. So we don't have. I mean, I've worked at 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 the college level at a school that had you know a, a shadowing program at the local hospital that you could apply for or something like that. We don't have that, but I think that's mostly because of the wide diversity of people coming in and how that would only be helpful to some of the class <laughs> and not all of the class, if that mm. makes sense. When you are applying to Bryn Mawr, I, I, my assumption is that you, when you're looking at potential applicants or pot- potential students to accept, you're trying, just like a medical school is trying you're trying to figure out who's going to who no, number one who really wants to be a physician and and who's going to be successful how do you evaluate students if they're not coming in with a lot of shadowing and and clinical experience if they're a true career changer how do you evaluate somebody on their ability to, to i guess not really not just do the curriculum and do it well and and get A's but that they're really that this is what they want to do. Right. Um, I mean, those are kind of two different things, right? I mean, there's the academic ability, which I think we approach in one way. And then there's the familiarity with medicine and their, um, their level of motivation, their, their passion for it. That that's, mm-hmm. that's something else. And it is, it is, it is a challenge that our admissions committee has when we're looking at applicants. Um, almost all of the people that come to, our program or a program like ours have something in their story, in their background, in their history that did familiarize them with medicine in some way. But it's it's often not a resume item. You know, like if it's not if if they if they haven't done the the volunteering in a hospital or the shadowing of a doctor, they have illness in their family that they've dealt with. They've had they've lost someone close to them, or they've been patients themselves. I mean, some of the most interesting applicants we get are ones that have seen the, 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 the doctors they want to be like treat them. And then the doctors that they never want to be like, um, treat them. And they have, you know, interesting things to say about, about how they've been treated as a, as a patient or, or how their, their parent has been treated or, you know, someone else. And those can be pretty compelling. I mean, um, Sure, we, we do get it wrong sometimes. I think like like just at the undergraduate level, maybe not nearly as much as at the undergraduate level, but you know, occasionally someone will start our program and say, you know, they won't have had that that clinical volunteer experience, and they'll go to our local hospital, and they won't enjoy it. I mean, they won't like being around sick people. They won't have realized what they were getting into. But that's pretty rare. I mean, as long as there's something in the application that that can actually be quite personal sometimes, um, but that that shows us that they're um that they've been in a setting where people have been taken care of and they've either been a patient or been around patients that's enough for us at you know mm-hmm. at the stage of the application academic ability of course is different i mean i can talk about that if you want but the this the familiarity with medicine and their and the potential that we see in them to be able to express it i mean you know our program is quite short it's only one year and before you know it 
you're turning around and applying to medical school. So for better or worse, I mean, I'm looking <laughs> when people apply to our program, I'm looking at the short term and, and maybe, you know, potential for them to be able to go off to an interview and talk about their motivation. Um, well, and so our interview for our program is a big part of the admissions process. And we can, we can learn a lot from sitting down with someone one-on-one and, and taking what they wrote about in their essay or what they talked about on their application and digging a little deeper and seeing, trying to get a sense of, you know, how authentic that is, um, you know, how, 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 um, how significant the, that motivation is because before you know it, they're going to be doing this exact same thing at a medical school. Yeah. A true career changer probably isn't going to have the sciences, right? That's, that's why they're a career changer that maybe they were an attorney or an accountant or whatever. Right. How do you judge them academically? Because they're, whether they graduated from college five years ago or 10 years ago, they didn't take sciences and maybe they didn't take sciences because they were never good at it, and so they avoided it. How do how do you judge that in an application? Well, that's a great question, um, and I think it's something that maybe your listeners should be aware of when they start thinking about our type of program. Um, I mean, we look, and it's a surprise to applicants all the time, but we look at high school transcripts. We look at their high school science grades. Um, so we do go back pretty far, and if it's someone who's been out of college for a long time, then high school, of course, is even you know, farther back in the rear view mirror. Um, but, but it was the last time where they were in an environment where they did lab work and they had to, to, um, to, to do, to do science. Um, we also look at, at standardized test scores. We look at their SATs or their ACT scores, which can surprise people as well. Um, sometimes when they learn that that's a requirement, I don't think we're that unusual. I mean, I don't know that all of our, of the career changer post program, Postback programs require those two things, but but many of them do, and those are informative to us. If they haven't done any science, like you said, if they haven't done any science in college, we do go back and look at those things. Um, the grades in college, I think, mean more than you might think, even if it's in a discipline completely far from science. I mean, if if you if you look at um, how many classes they took, if you look at the level of classes they took, if you look at just kind of the challenges. Um, they faced in whatever discipline they chose, you can get some sense to be able to predict how they're going to do in a rigorous science program, you know, even if it's not science. I mean, and, and, and the letters of recommendation help a lot too, because if there's a faculty member in one of those departments that says, you know, this person went above and beyond what was required of her, she, you know, was a great critical thinker, she could, um, she could um, absorb material very quickly and prioritize it, um, in a, in a, in a coherent way, all that, those kind of skills that you might show in a, well, English major, <laughs> um, you might do that. Those are, those are transferable to, to doing well in the sciences. So it's a combination of, of all of those things. But I do think applicants need to be aware of the fact that we go back pretty far into the past, um, to see some aptitude in, in science. There are some postback programs that I've seen and heard from students that require an MCAT. Is that right. going to be a career changer or is that more of the academic enhancer that want that? That would be the academic enhancer because I mean, I, we, we couldn't possibly require an MCAT if they haven't taken the courses. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Right. Good to know. What's the biggest mistake that you see applicants making to your post program? It sounds 
so obvious, but it's true. It's applying late. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, you know, I said before, we're kind of a dress rehearsal for medical school. We're, we're a mini little version of a, of a medical school in terms of our application process. And the same thing obviously applies, right? When you go to fill out that AMCAS application, get it in early. We only have a certain number of seats for our class. And we see some really amazing applicants at the very end of the cycle. And it's always very hard for us to turn them down or, or to put them on a wait list, to be honest. I mean, we don't usually turn them down if they're really great, but if we're not sure there's going to be room for them, or we're, we're pretty sure there's not room for them, they end up on a wait list. And um, that's always frustrating to me, who's trying to build the best class I can build. You know, I think, well, if, if this person has such a great background, they're clearly on the ball, they're clearly organized, why didn't they apply in October? I mean, why am I getting this in late February, you know? Do you ever ask that question? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, not directly to the <laughs> applicant. Um, I'd want but, to know. <laughs> you know. Well, some often those applicants, to be honest, um, have the same experience at other programs as well. And then they're a reapplicant in the cycle early on the next year. And mm -hmm. it was, it was, you know, for whatever reason, they were just late in the cycle. The decision was made late or they were, they were abroad somewhere in a foreign country, or there was some reason that they weren't applying till, till late February. We shut down usually, um, by the 1st of March, our, our process is pretty much over. We start accepting applications in August. So, for someone to wait till February to apply, I mean, they, they've really, the, the, you know, the train is, is really leaving the station, as I like to say. Do you have a um, deadline listed for applications? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's almost always, it's early February is, is the actual deadline for applications. But then, yeah. of course, we're still making decisions after that. Yeah. So that, that has always been my biggest contention with the application process for medical school. And now it sounds like for postback programs as well is that historically students work off of deadlines. The, right. the whole rolling admissions process is brand new to students who are now career changes or, or those undergrad students applying directly to medical school. And, and they see the deadline and they go, okay, if my stuff is in by then, I'm good. Because that's what sure. college is like. And, and then they hear, what do you mean rolling? What's, what's rolling admissions? So I, I wish we changed the language in the admissions world to get rid of that deadline. I, I think it's a great point. Yeah, I, I, I think that's great. It's not only just the way it worked in college, but, you know, for people who've been out in the working world, they mm -hmm. have deadlines as well. But, you know, deadlines are deadlines. You have a article you're writing for the newspaper. It's due by midnight. You get it done. You're fine. You know, no one says you should have done it two months ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I, yeah, I think changing the language would be would be a great idea the way we talk about it. Um, that's probably the most common thing. Interviews would be the other thing. I mentioned it before that it's important to us in this process. And I, I, I um, you can, you can do them on Skype if you can't get to, to Philadelphia. Um, I, and that's fine. And we don't penalize anyone for doing a Skype interview, but whether it's Skype or in person, there, there needs to be some real thought put into what they want to communicate in 30 or 40 minutes. You know, that's all we have for an interview with an individual. And I think that that's probably the second most common, um, I, I guess the mistake or, or weak spot that we see yeah. in applications is when they come in and they're, and they're just not well prepared. They don't listen very well. They do all, <laughs> they hog, you know, they do all the talking and don't, and don't stop to breathe. 
Um, or they give us just one word answers and make the interviewer work incredibly hard. I mean, and that's an interpersonal skill thing yeah. that, that are, you know, to be honest, our more mature career changers don't really have a problem with. I mean, they've been out in the, in the world and had to do that in a professional setting, but sometimes the younger students really struggle with that. Well, good thing I wrote a book all about the interview. Yes, <laughs> that, was a, that was a segue. <laughs> um, for the career changers, one of the things that I see a lot with students who are coming from that professional world is that they treat the medical school interview like a job interview, and it just comes off a little bit differently. How do you experience the career changers in, the, in that respect? Well, I think it depends a little bit on what profession they were in, right? Um, because I think it's different in different settings. But, but yeah, the, the um, like I said, generally they, I think they do very well in the interview because of their maturity and their comfort level talking about themselves. Um, but the mistake that some of them do make, and it and it maybe comes out of the business world, I think more than anywhere else, is that they they dominate too much. You know, yeah. I mean, they, whether they talk too much or not, they just, they strong arm the conversation in the direction they want it to go in, in a way, you know, it's nice to have some goals, right? And you probably say that in your book. I, I haven't finished your book, by the way, I'm about halfway <laughs> through it. Um, but, but, you know, I'm sure they're supposed to, they should have some goals about what they want to communicate about themselves in the course of the interview, but, but they're too tightly attached to those goals and they, and they, they, you know, leadership is nice, but overleading <laughs> um, can be a real problem. And if you're thinking about someone and how they're going to treat a patient someday, or how they're going to interact with with medical staff and especially patients, um, you don't want someone too um, too assertive, overly assertive. I think. Yeah, I, I think that's always the the biggest take home for somebody as they're preparing for their interviews and thinking about it is you are being judged. I'm picturing you and and. And Glenn is picturing you treating his mom and treating his son or daughter or whatever. You as a physician, how are, how well are you communicating um, in that clinical setting? That's how you're being judged. So I like how you right. said that. Yeah, exactly. So I like, but, but just real quickly too, the part I do like about your book, Ryan, let me just say this, was how you've emphasized the being positive part in mm -hmm. the interview. One Another thing that career changers do sometimes do in the interview is they go through the professions they've tried and explain why it wasn't right for them. Yeah. So, and they, and it's not just in the interview, but it can be in the essay often as well. You know, um, I thought I might have been pre med early on. I decided not to. I graduated. I went into finance, um, and then I considered law school. So the reasons I don't like finance and the reasons I don't like law are X, Y, and Z. And it, what it ends up, it, it's it's the journey they went on. Yeah. But it's negative. I mean, yeah. it's all negative, and it comes out at the end like medicine just was the default that they arrived at. <laughs> so you know, kind of. Here I am. <laughs> I don't have anything negative to say about medicine yet, but I will someday. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, is that the kind of person that that you want yeah. in the profession? So yeah, be careful. Yeah. That. Awesome. Well, thank you for that feedback, Bryn Mawr and a lot of postback programs. I'm assuming Bryn Mawr uh, have linkage. Um, mm -hmm. with medical schools. Explain what that linkage is. And if a student is evaluating post-bac programs, should they be overly concerned if a post-bac program doesn't have official linkage with a medical school? Um, I don't think they should be overly concerned. No, I mean, we have, we have a lot and we have 18 linkages. Um, and I think it's probably at the top end of, of, in terms of quantity. Um, but that's because we are an old program and we've been around for a long time, um, I, more than anything else. It's not, 
for better or worse. It's just a matter of of um, of developing relationships, mostly with schools in the Northeast that are that are near us or or whatever. And they develop over time with a program like ours because the medical school sees graduates of of the program come to them and do really well in their medical school. And so they start thinking, well, we want more of those people, you know? So, Mm -hmm. and, and the way a linkage works, just if you, if your listeners don't know is, is is you, instead of finishing the program and taking a glide year while you're applying to medical school, you apply to medical school halfway through the program, which is at the very end of the application cycle. So it's in the winter um, you're applying and if you're conditionally accepted, then you finish the programs. If you finish the program strong, then that conditional acceptance turns into a real acceptance and you can start med school that summer. Um, and there's some obviously nice things about that. It saves a year of your life potentially if there's something else, if there's nothing else that you really wanted to do with your year. Um, some of them waive the MCAT, um, which is obviously attractive to people. That is not a reason to try to link just to avoid the MCAT. I mean, I always tell students that they've got plenty of tests later on. I mean, your board's being the big one, right? So you're not getting out of <laughs> standardized testing for the rest of your life. But but it is it is a nice thing. I mean, it is attractive. Um, the um, but that's how it that's how it works. Um, those are advantages. Um, they are asking you to commit to one school in a very, very short period of time. So, um, you know, you, you arrive at our program and within months you're, you're choosing one school at the exclusion of all the other 140 some medical schools in the country that you know is the best fit for you. And then trying to make an argument that that's where you belong. And that's a really tall order for a lot of students. And so, you know, if you were a post-bac in a program that didn't have linkages, I, I I wouldn't worry about it. I mean, you're going to, if you do well academically in the program and have the transcript to, to show and the extracurricular experiences to show, you're going to be a great applicant and you're not going to have to make such a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough decision to make um, without a complete picture. If you apply the normal way and let's say you apply to 15 schools and you get interviews and you travel around the country, you're going to look back on that 10, 20 years from now, knowing that, you really, you know, um, cast a wide net and, and really explored all your options. It's hard for someone who successfully links to ever really know that. I mean, there are definitely advantages to it and that's why it's a popular thing. But, but one of the disadvantages is the, is the, the choice of school and how well you really know you belong in one, one place. Why should somebody be looking at Bryn Mawr for postback? I think I've gone over some of the things about the program that I like. Um, I mean, I'm obviously partial, but that I think are our strengths. Um, I think the the thing I'd like to add maybe would be the the students. I mean, I, I am in a position where I get to select some of the really um, people with some really amazing experiences and a lot to bring to the table. I mean, we have people who um, just have done some incredible things between college and, and coming to our program or even in college. I mean, um, whether it's been, um, you know, uh, we've had people in the arts, we've had certainly people with high levels of command in the military, we've had people who've worked in the government, um, and the diversity of the students when they come to our program and are all here together is a reason that I would choose Bryn Mawr. Um, that and, and just the collaborative learning environment. I mean, it, it is an environment where the basic sciences are taught 
um, in a way that's that's very as interactive as introductory science can be, right? I mean, there's an element of you having to sit in a lecture hall and absorb a lot of material, but but our faculty, because we're a small liberal arts college, our, our, our faculty are, are very invested in in um, breaking the students into groups and working collaboratively as much as possible. And so, I mean, those would be probably the two things I'd want to add to what I've already said. For the student or not student, uh, for the for the listener who is sitting in their day job right now, dreaming of being a doctor, changing careers, what's the first thing he or she should do to start looking at and start the process of getting into a career changer post-bac? Get out there and get that clinical experience. And it's, you know, you hear this a lot. And as we said, there are some people who come to the program with very little of that. But if you're doing it, if you're maximizing the way you want to do it or or optimizing the way you want to do it, it would be creating um, some time in your week. If it's Saturday morning for three hours, if if you have some crazy job on wall street and you're working, you know, 70 hour weeks or something, you've got to, to prioritize just enough to get three hours of time every week to get into a hospital setting and do some sort of clinical volunteering or, or shadowing either one. I mean, I like, I like both, but I think the, the volunteering being of use at the, at the hospital or clinic, um, as long as it involves patient contact, as long as being of use doesn't just mean being isolated from the patients. But if you're, you know, it is, is I think probably the, the best way you can start at least to figure out if that's the environment you want to, you want to be in. Um, Shadowing also, obviously, intellectually, it's interesting. You get to see interesting stuff. You get to meet um, people in the profession. But, you know, I, I find the students that have, that have um, when they apply to our program, have def- not, not literally deferred, but they, they've deferred the decision to apply one year after the next after the next. And, you know, they're 27 years old and they say, well, actually, I thought about doing these programs when I was 23, but my job was just such that I couldn't possibly catch my breath and, and explore medicine. I, I understand that to some degree, but when I see it year after year after year, I think, you know, it, it, at some point you just need to do it. If it means three hours less of sleep a week, then, then make it happen. It's not like you're going to get a lot of sleep later anyway. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. I mean, but, but that's, that's the thing that they should start doing. I mean, conversations with doctors, um, parents of your fan, of your friends, all that kind of stuff. That's all very interesting. Going online is interesting, but, but I think the actual practical experience in a healthcare setting is the best way to, to start. Any last words of encouragement for that person sitting in the cubicle worried about making that leap and, and changing everything they know? You know, it's never too late is kind of the cliche, right? Um, But it is true because of the existence of programs like mine. And I, and I think, I think you need, to have faith in that. Just have faith that it is not too late. Um, if you need to talk to um, current postback students about where they were at a year or two ago and how you know they made this decision, we can put you in contact up with, with them. Most of our peer programs can do that as well. Because sometimes you just being able to see examples of people who've made the decision makes you realize that it's, that it can actually happen. I mean, how many professions can you really do that? (laughs) I mean, granted medicine is unusual in the sense that we have these requirements, these courses you have to take to even go to the training that you get. I mean, we're a little unique in that regard, but you know, 
I think in some careers you might say it is too late, you, you know, um, at a certain age or a certain stage. But I think with our career changer postback programs, it's really not too late. And there's this sense when you're an undergraduate around friends that might be pre-med that, um, not to use this metaphor again, but it is true that, that, that the train is leaving the station, that, that like everyone's pre-med, they're all going. I graduated from college. I wasn't on that train. You know, I missed it. Um, and, um, there's another one coming along, <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there, and I think making sure that that gets communicated is really important. Um, we have a lot of examples just, just for, for you to know, um, of profiles of, uh, current postback students on our website. And I think a lot of our other programs do too, as well. So if you are that person sitting in an office thinking, oh, I, I, I can't do that, or there's, there's no one out there like me. Just seeing the profiles of those individuals, I think, would motivate them a little bit. All right. So there you have it. Again, that was Dr. Glenn Cummings, the Associate Dean and Director of the Post-Baccalaureate Pre-Medical Program at Bryn Mawr. If you're interested in Bryn Mawr, go check them out, brynmar.edu. Let me help you spell that, B-R-Y-N-M-A-W-R. That is all we have for you today. I hope you got some great information out of it, if you are on this journey looking at a postback program, hopefully what we talked about today will help guide you in the right direction to choosing the best postback program, or maybe even not choosing a postback program for you, whatever fits your needs. That's the ultimate goal of this podcast, of all the information we give you here on this podcast, is to figure out what is right for you. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time here at the Medical School Headquarters in the pre-med years.